Matthew 13, 1 through 23, the parable of the sower. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things and parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they did not, had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people belong to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The second scripture, second scripture is out of Colossians 1, 3 through 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is, faith, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord. We ask, Father, that your word would be ministered through your servant Royce in a very powerful and meaningful way. Lord, we ask that your truth, the sword, the word of God that you've given us would come forth, Lord, with strength and power and wisdom. Father, that you would open our hearts and gird us with a covering of righteousness, your son, Jesus Christ, that he would cover us and deliver us from the evil one in this place, Lord God, that you would minister your truth, your peace, your grace, your hope. Father God, through your word this morning, in your precious name, Lord, amen. This is not rocket science, but when you plant tomato seeds, what you expect to get is a tomato. After the plant grows, yes, Dave, and as you get up there, the fruit at the end of the vine or bush, depends on your kind of tomato you plant, is uh, you get a tomato. In fact, our tomatoes this year, we planted seeds that are so sophisticated, on the vine they have the UPC sticker on the bottom of them. (laughs) They're just that sophisticated, okay? And, and then if I planted, if I planted uh, a zucchini, right, what would I expect to grow on the end of that plant? After the flowers, it would get a, a zucchini. Okay, you guys are tracking with me. Good, good. Haven't lost you so far, okay? So we, when we plant seeds, whatever the seed is, we have an expectation that if we plant a tomato, we will get tomato fruit. If we plant a zucchini, we get t- zucchini. If we plant a pepper, we get a pepper. We don't plant, plant, plant tomato seeds and get a zucchini. We don't plant a pepper seed and get a potato. Now, this is like, okay, this is really good, really sophisticated, really insightful rice. But we, but we take those kind of principles, the principles of, the, of nature, and we have certain things that we expect go into something. We expect a certain thing pretty clear-cut come out. Yes, there may be weeds, but it's not because we planted them. Because they're there uh, for other reasons. And this idea of fruitfulness, this metaphor of bearing fruit in person's life, is a, very, is a common one. It's one that we grasp in general in our culture, but it's also one that Jesus used often. For example, in, in Matthew's Gospel, he talks about certain people, and, he's, and he asks people rhetorical questions like, do you pick grapes from thorn bushes? Do we pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Do we pick figs from thistles? No, we don't. And they knew that, okay? You didn't, you didn't have to be a farmer to understand those kind of things. But Jesus asked us, and he says, you know, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit, and a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. And, he's, and he summarizes that, thus you'll be able to recognize them, the different kinds of people, by their fruit, by the outcome of their life, by the influence they have. And he talks in the, in the Gospels of the seed, being the Gospel, the, the new life planted in our hearts, and therefore, if we plant the gospel, Jesus is saying, the kingdom, the, the news of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ in people's hearts, we should have an expectation of a certain kind of fruitfulness. Last week, we talked about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. And just, to, just I want to summarize it. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but just to summarize what it was, because it sets the stage for where we're going today. 
Jesus is preaching through his ministry, and we're told in Matthew chapter 4 that he started preaching, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And he went up to certain men and said, You know what? You follow me and be my disciples. And they followed after him. They left their family, they left their jobs, and they followed after Christ. We also are told in the same chapter that he started preaching and doing miracles in the synagogues and in public squares. And his, it says that his fame spread. And the crowds just grew and grew and grew. And so the, the, Jesus had two types. Matthew keeps telling us as we go through his gospel, there's two types of people following Jesus. The crowd and the committed. The disciples, what we'll call them, the alliteration works better. Crowd and committed. Okay, And, and the committed were those people who heard the word of Christ, heard what he said, and personally responded to what he said. They took an act of faith, a step of obedience, and followed after him. The crowd, however, who heard the same words, saw the same miracles, when Jesus had that call to discipleship, stood back and said, I I like the miracles, I like the benefits of what I'm getting, but I'm not putting skin in the game. So they were the crowds. And then he tells this parable. He tells a parable, we're told in Matthew 13, specifically because he has these two group of people following him. So he says, he tells the parable of the sower. He got, the farmer goes out, throws the seed on the ground, and he gets some on the, on the path. It uh, doesn't penetrate the soil, obviously. The birds come and eat it up. Some is on shallow ground. It's very short. It springs up really quick, but because of the, there's no depth to its root, when the sun comes out, it withers. He talks about those who are sowed in, in good relatively deep soil, apparently, but there's a lot of weeds in it, thorns, we're told, and it chokes the plants. So they grow, they're sitting there, but they never produce any fruit. But then he said there's a fourth kind of soil, and that is a good, he calls it the good soil. And what makes it good? He doesn't talk about its depth, he doesn't talk about its rockiness, he doesn't talk about its hardness, he doesn't talk about the weeds. What makes a good soil good is that it actually produced the fruit, the grain, the seed planted, it grew into a plant, that plant produced the fruit, whatever it was it was trying to grow. So Jesus tells this parable. And then the disciples say, okay, we don't quite get, what's the point? What are you trying to say? And Jesus says, as Monica read, he says, something that startles us, it should startle us. He gives us a a promise to the committed and a warning to the crowds. Because they're both listening to him speak. And he says to them, um, uh, you, to you, to you, he's speaking to the disciples, to committed in the earshot of the crowd. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will be given in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. And that's Jesus' explanation of why he's teaching them in that way. And then he goes on to explain the parable that he just told. He goes on to unpack its meaning, specifically to say, how do I know if I'm part of the crowd or I'm part of the committed? How do we know which, which camp we fall in? Which, which group are we in? So he explains the parable of soils. And he says there's, there's a person who has, is, and he, the soil represents, he sa- Jesus says, pe- types of people. And the seed, he specifically says, is the word of the kingdom, or we would say the message of the gospel. So the seed goes in, and there's four kinds of people. There's a hard-hearted person. They hear the message, it just bounces right off, and the evil one comes and snatches it away. The evil one doesn't prevent them from hearing it. The evil one just takes it away because it's just sitting there. Then we're told also that there's the shallow person, the person who hears the gospel, gets excited. You know, they're really enthusiastic. They're, they're going to town on it. But then when difficulties come, he says, because of the word, because they're pressed on issues that the word brings to them, they're, they're pressed on uh, those things, they wither. The sun comes out. Life happens and they shrink. They die. They fall away, he says. 
And then there's the third, so the third one is that who's choked by distractions. It's planted in the soil, the, soil, the plant grows, the weeds around it, the distractions of life, the love of the world, Jesus says specifically, they get distracted, and they're there, but they never produce any fruit. And then he says there's a fourth type of soil, the soil that he calls the good soil. And he says this is the kind of soil that they hear the word and understands it. The other ones, he said, they hear the word but don't understand it. This one, he makes that unique thing. They hear the word and they understand it. And he says, he indeed bears fruit bears and yields fruit. In some cases, 100, sometimes 60, sometimes 30. He's saying different types of people bear different amounts of fruit. That's not the point. The point is, there's fruitfulness in people's lives. This is Jesus' point of that parable. What a person is, crowd or committed, is expressed, is demonstrated is manifested, whatever word you want to use, in how that person lives, especially in how they live in difficult times. Conversely, by the fact that there are three types of soil that didn't produce fruit, he's also saying that how a person lives reveals who that person is. Either way, it works either way. A person who, who hears, and he says, hears and understands the message of the kingdom, the gospel of Christ, uh, demonstrates their understanding by the fruit in their life. Okay? Plant the gospel, you get the gospel and back. Whether or not someone hears the word of God and understands it will be manifested or demonstrated in their life. How do you know if somebody really understands the gospel, has really received the word? Look at the way they live their life, Jesus is saying. Not a complicated concept. And you know what? This isn't even unique to this parable. This is unique. Jesus talks about this actually very frequently. This concept that our life manifests, demonstrates, reveals who we are in the Word, in our lives. He says all, in a number of different places. For example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. He preached the sermon, and he was on a mount. Thus the name, Sermon on the Mount. It's really sophisticated. And he goes for three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, 5, 6, and 7. It's the lengthiest discourse, the lengthiest sermon we know that Jesus, Jesus preached. And he hits a wide variety of subjects. But it's all about how do you live in light of the new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And at the end of that, when he wraps it up, his closing statement is that he gives a parable. He tells another story. He tells about, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, who does them, is like the wise man who built his house on a, on a, um, on a stone, on a rock. Okay? He took the foundation, he built it on a rock, and he built up his structure. That's his building, that's his living, his life. And then Jesus said, when the rains came down and the winds blew and the, and the, and the storm beat against that house, it stood. But he also says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not practice them, does not obey them, is not changed by them, is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. His foundation is on the sand. It's unstable. And Jesus says that the, wind, the rain came down, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it what? And it fell. How did it fall? With a great crash. So this idea, this concept of hearing the Word of God, understanding it, and it reflecting back in our life is something that's frequently in Jesus. 
He goes, he says in other places too, we can read, look in a number of scriptures where the imagery of a seed and the gospel is there. The, the concept of the seed, a, a piece of something that the, the seed itself contains in it the life, the DNA, the plant is contained in the seed. Not the soil, not the person, but the life is in the seed itself. And in that imagery of the, the gospel being a seed, we're told in a number of different places. But the message of the kingdom, the gospel. And, and um, so the seed of the gospel grows and bears fruit of the gospel. A tomato produces a tomato, a zucchini, a zucchini. The gospel bears fruit of the gospel. Well, what does it mean? What, what, what does fruit look like? I mean, it's a great analogy. Most of us are quick to say, yeah, I understand what fruit is. But, but what does that look like in our life? What is fruit? What, what is fruit? And there's a number of places we could go in the scriptures that, that defines or not so much defines, but give representation of what fruit is. And, and the first place that came to my mind, and probably if you've been in a Christian for very long, the first place that came to your mind is what? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, you can't get an easier than that, right? What is fruit? The fruit is, okay, the fruit is, according to Galatians 5, Paul writing to Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are represent those those characteristics in your life do represent the gospel. We could spend some time there, but we're not going to. Okay, I wanted to mention that because many people would say, "Hey, what what about the fruit of the spirit?" Well, it's awesome stuff. It is a demonstration of the gospel. But as I studied this and looked through this and was thinking about it, there are a number of other places, and I wanted to focus on one of those other places today, and that's Colossians one. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to walk through Colossians 1. If not, it should appear on the screen behind me periodically as we go through it, okay? Colossians 1. And I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. Uh, and he says, um, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard, of this... Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and growing as it has does among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all his truth. Now I'm going to just want to, I want to draw some parallels here. You might say, Colossians 1, what has this got to do with fruit? What has this got to do with, well, wouldn't it be easier to go to something like the fruit of the Spirit? Well, as I was reading and studying the concept of growth, of fruitfulness, one of the things that we notice in verses particularly 5 and 6 the second half in 5 and 6, is the same parallel kind of language that you, Jesus used in the parable of the sower. Same kind of language, same concepts, but he says it a little bit differently. For example, in the second half of verse 5, he says, Of this you have heard. Jesus talked about the message going out and people hearing the message and understanding it. Before, in the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul's talking about the same thing Jesus was. There's a message of the gospel of the kingdom, that Christ died for our sins, we are reconciled to God through the work of Christ. That message that he is, they're preaching, they heard it. Somebody came to Colossae and preached it to them. We know it wasn't Paul, because Paul never, never got there to speak to them. He was in prison when he wrote this letter to them. So somebody showed up in Colossae and preached the gospel to them. So they heard the word, the gospel message, which is, in our analogy, the seed of the gospel. Then we're also told in verse 6, which has come to you as indeed the whole world it, it is bearing fruit and growing as it is also among you. Again, the language of growth 
and fruitfulness. Just as Jesus talked about is in there. The bearing of fruit and growing is applied to the gospel. He specifically says the gospel itself is growing and increasing. It is having a greater influence. It is also increasing in number. Uh, he also talks about the soil there, if you want to do it with the growth, it takes place in two types of people. The whole world, it's spreading like wildfire. It's going from city to city to town to town, to village to village, from country to country, from continent to continent. It is spreading, it's growing, the whole world. But he also get, says it's also very personal. He says to them in Colossae, it has come to you. It is growing in you, it is fruitful in you specifically. It's not just out there. The gospel isn't something out there for them. It is something very personal to them. And in, verse, in the second half of B, he says, Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and his truth. This is back to what Jesus was saying repeatedly. Those who hear and understand, something is different. Those who hear and understand, something is different. And Paul then shifts gears, as Paul often does, After he makes a statement of fact, he then goes and prays for them. He tells them what he is praying for them. He's never met there. He's not their pastor. But he is praying for them. And he says, in light of the gospel growing, in light of its fruitfulness, I have a prayer for you guys. And and this is what we're going to look at. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, and so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They already have some spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's already said that to them. They heard the gospel, they understand it, they've responded. So, So Paul is asking them, God, to enable them to increase their understanding and insight. So they have a little bit. He says, I want you to have a lot more. You have some insight, you have some growth, but you know what? I'm praying that God really gives you a lot of growth. It echoes what Jesus said when he explained why he taught in parables. He said to them, for the one who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. Jesus is not stingy with truth. Jesus is not stingy with the fruitfulness he wants in people's life. And Paul, knowing that, it says, you guys got a great start, but you can get a whole lot more. So he prays that they get more wisdom, more insight into the ramifications and understanding of the gospel. They never say enough is enough. Paul never said to anybody, you know what, you've really done a great job, stop here, you're good to go. Your your ticket's punched, you're going to heaven, just sit back and wait it out. Never a message of the New Testament. He goes in, in fact, he's saying the magnitude and meaning of the gospel is so enormous the implications of the gospel in our personal lives, in the lives of a community, in the lives of a city, in the lives of the world, is so enormous, we could spend our entire lives trying to understand it, and we won't even get close. In fact, he'll say, in, in, earlier in Ephesians, he says, we'll spend eternity trying to grasp all these things, and we'll never exhaust all that God has done through the gospel of Christ. It is that huge. And by the way, if we're echoing the Jesus' words in our mind, if, if, if you feel content with the understanding that you have. You feel content with the life you have. You feel content with knowing God the way you do. Uh, That should be a red flag. That should be a warning. Jesus said, just like he said that he, he would, the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. He continues, but the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. People who have, and given the truth, the parable of the soils, it's for a season, no fruit, it's gone. 
And it's God's desire that we, and His purpose that we increase in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Because we can be smarter? Because we can like, preach better sermons and do better Bible studies and talk real profound to our neighbors? Is that why He would like us to be smarter and have greater understanding? Those are not necessarily bad things, but that's not His purpose. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk. We, that's a metaphor we understand. What is your walk of life? What is his or her walk of life? It simply means living. It means moving through life. The word walking is not a strange thing. We don't use it very, real commonly, but to, uh, someone's walk is the way they live their life. But he says then a phrase that really is, is hard sometimes for us to grasp. Not the concept, but the wording is unusual for us in English. It says, in a manner worthy of the Lord. In a manner worthy of the Lord. What that implies when we first read it is, we have to do things that are good enough for God. Right? We need to be worthy so he'll do that for us, that he'll benefit us. That's not what he's saying. Paul actually, and John, actually use this phraseology frequently, a number of places, actually frequently, four times. (laughs) I guess that's frequent. Um, For example, in Philippians 1.27, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you were called. He says to, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then John, the Apostle John, in his third letter, his, his third letter, the real short one, he says a simple phrase. He says, we will, you will do well to send them on their journey in the manner worthy of God. So this idea of living a walk of life in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of God, worthy of Christ, worthy of our calling, is there. What does he mean by worthy? That's the word we stumble over. That's the word that we find confusing. And the word worthy does not mean to prove worth. It's not that I prove my worth. It is not that we earn by our efforts. It is, it is not that we gain favor or merit. It's not that I need to be good enough to get God's approval or to get God's benefit. It is, it is uh, good deeds and our good effort do not obligate God to acknowledge us or to reward us accordingly. That is not what he's talking about. That We know that from the wording, the, the Greek language of this, but also because that, that, that mentality is not in the New Testament, is not part of the Bible. So what does he mean by worthy? He means simply, in light of the worth of something. When you do something that's worthy, worthy for that thing, it's not because you are providing the worth, it's because it is worth something. You do, you act a behave that reflects the worth of the thing that you have in mind. It has expressed the worth or value of something else. For example, Monica and I have our 30th anniversary in August of this year. So if I was going to... Okay. Was that called in the question or like surprise? We're actually 30 years. Okay, we've been. Okay, I'm not going to go there, okay? Anyways, 30 years, okay? 30 years we've been married, okay? And um, if I wanted to buy a gift worthy of the occasion or worthy of her, I would not be buying a gift to earn her affection, right? 30 years into it, it's, it's kind of late to do that. Okay? A little late for me to start forking it over, though I am behind. Okay? But besides that, 
a little, a little late. What would I mean? If I bought a gift or did something that is worthy of the anniversary, it means that I do something that expresses the value of the relationship, the value of the, the event, not that I'm earning that. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. When we go and we have the spiritual wisdom and understanding, it is so that we gain and we can live our lives in a manner that reflects the Lord. So if we went back to all those phrases and we rephrased them and took out the word worthy, okay, let's just remove that word and rephrase them. We could say this in Philippians 1. Let, let, the, way you live your lo- way you, let the way you live your life express the worth and value of the gospel that has come to you. Or Ephesians 4. Pay attention to your life reflects the value of being called to God through Christ. Or, 1 Thessalonians 2. Live your lives in such a way that you demonstrate by your attitudes and actions the value of God's kingdom and glory. Or 3 John, he says, travel, travel on your journey with the seriousness of being God's ambassador. It's not that they're providing the worth. It's because of what they're doing, it is worthy of their actions. So in Colossians, back in verse 10, as to you, as, so as to walk in a manner of the worthy of the Lord, we could rephrase that. We could say, for example, so that your lifestyle will reflect the value of the gospel, which is changing you. Okay? Now, all that to lead up to a, a phrase, trying to summarize this. Trying to summarize the concept. I, I, I was trying to work on this. Using language of fruitfulness, it still becomes to an analogy. It still comes down to a metaphor. So I thought, what is Paul trying to say? What is Jesus saying in, the, in there? What is Paul reiterating in this epistle, in this, um, in this letter to the Colossians? And, he's, and this is what I would like to say. This is the kernel of the idea. Because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, transformed lives will express the power of the gospel. Because the power of the gospel excuse me, because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, transformed lives will express the power of the gospel. If, the, if it is true that the gospel really does change people, really does bring th- things into the light of that, then it will be expressed in how we live. And we will live in light of the gospel. What we do, what we don't do, how we speak, what, our actions will reflect the gospel. People will be able to look at us and say, hey, you know what? And in his attitudes or her attitudes and actions, they can see the gospel. So Paul goes through that, and then he goes through and explains, he unpacks that in these short little phrases. When he says, I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, or I want you to live transformed lives that express the gospel, that express the power of the gospel, he unpacks, he hits on six things that show that. We're going to walk through these quickly, but I just want to highlight them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking them. I don't need to. But these are just signs of the fruit. If I hold up an apple... You guys can tell that it's an apple by certain characteristics. You know it's not a zucchini. You should know it's not a zucchini. Okay? The same way with this. Now, could we look at other, other passages that talk about other fruit like the fruit of the Spirit? Sure. But this is what Paul's saying. You want insight so you can walk in a manner that reflects the gospel? What does that look like? And he's praying for him. Okay? This is what he says. Let's look, look at verse um, 10. First of all, because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, transform lives will express the power of gospel by pleasing God in all aspects of life. He says in verse 10, fully pleasing to him. Him is God. Fully pleasing to him. Now the word fully does not mean completely. It doesn't mean that you have pleased God so much he can't be pleased anymore. Okay? It's not that his glass is full. Okay? His of pleasure is full. 
What he means by that is in all respects, fully, in every avenue, in every aspect of your life, the fullness of your life, every aspect of it, you are pleasing to God. It's not that you divide, we divide our life into the sacred and secular. You know the sacred and secular? These are things that God can touch. You know my Bible reading, my prayer time, coming to the gathering on Sundays, maybe my missional home committee. But there are things over here that, you know what, it's really none of his business. You know what, I'm going to reserve those for myself. Whatever they might be, attitudes, actions, hobbies, you name it, whatever it is. If God doesn't do it, then you're not pleasing. You don't even think about pleasing God in those things. Paul's saying, fully, everything in your life is on the table. Everything, every relationship. Your time, your money, your relationships. Not only your relationships with your relatives and your friends, but how about your relationships with your unknown neighbors and the people that you don't like, your enemies are included in that. Uh, uh, your work, your work time, your free time, your hobbies, your dreams, your desires, your decisions, all those things are included in being fully pleasing to God. And, and to the Thessalonians, Paul says that finally then, brothers, I ask you and urge you in the, in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So he's talking about you can walk, you can live your life and please God just as you are now doing, that you do so more and more. That, just real brief, that tells us three things. First of all, it tells us that pleasing God can be taught and learned. Because he taught it to them and they learned it. It also tells us that, that pleasing God is some, has obvious aspects in their life. It shows. He could see it in their life. It also tells us that we can increase in our ability to please God in our lives. He says, I urge you to do so more and more. Remember those those uh, bracelets, the WWJD. How many of you are familiar with the WWJD craze? How many of you still have your bracelets and t-shirts? Are they, yeah, okay. If you're not familiar with it, back in the 80s and 90s, it became real popular to have the What Would Jesus Do? It came from a novel by a guy named Sheldon uh, called uh, In His Steps. And it particularly started with the craze within youth ministries and churches, but it spread to if you're faced with a decision, you're faced with anything in life, you ask the question, what would Jesus do? Okay. Good concept, and I think the idea of having triggers, uh, in other words, as you face decisions, face issues of life, to have things say, okay, how am I going to handle this is a good concept. The consumer aspect of that just went crazy, so they WWJD'd everything, from plaques to bumper stickers, like I said, bracelets and everything. But unfortunately, even though it's a good idea, I really do think, personally, that the WWJD craze and the concept of asking, what would Jesus do when I have to make a decision, is a little awkward and is a little inaccurate. Now, this might come to a surprise to some of you, and it might be disappointing to others, but I'm not Jesus, okay? I, I know it's disappointing. I am not Jesus. I am not the Savior. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Son of God. So to say when I face a decision, what would Jesus do, there's a gap there that I have to leap. How about anybody else with me in that? Okay? There's a little bit of a gap there for me to Jesus to figure out what he's going to do. And there's many things that he did that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do. There is a phrase that we could, and I tried, it just didn't take off. I tried to do it. I made the bracelets, the t-shirts. I got a ton of them. By the way, if you need some, I got them for you. Uh, WWPG. WWPG. What would please God? We can ask ourselves, with any decision we make, what would please God? Not to earn his favor, not to earn his acceptance, but to reflect the acceptance and the favor we already have. And Paul says in this passage, and he says in, in other places, we can know what pleases God. It doesn't take a whole lot. When I'm faced with a decision, a moral dilemma, a life decision, with our money, time, finances, relationships, do I forgive that person or not? 
what would please God? It's not hard to ask. That's what Paul's saying. In every aspect of our life, we need to move on. Secondly, because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, transform lives will express the power of God, power of the gospel by doing good. Just plain old, simple, straight up, doing good. Look at verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. Similar to the language in verse 6, uh, that the gospel, the word of truth, is bearing fruit and growing. Uh, Good works, doing things that are right and responsible, do reflect our faith in God. Uh, Unfortunately, we, we need to be clear, good works, doing things that are good, does not earn us acceptance with God. It does not earn God's approval. If the gospel message is clear on that, and we spend a lot of time talking about that, the danger we have in churches that, like us who emphasize the gospel so much is we keep telling people there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. They interpret that as there's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you need. Well, since I cannot earn God's approval, I'm already approved, I'm in, that means I can do whatever I want, I'm forgiven, good to go. But Jesus is saying that's not it. Paul is saying the New Testament never gives that, that impression. There are things you are supposed to do. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is a great summary of the gospel message. If you need to know, what, when he keeps talking about the gospel, what is he talking about? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're not going to read it. But he ends that in verses 8 and 9 and 10. He says, but for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. We usually stop there when we quote that verse. But then verse 10, Paul continues and says, for, this is the reason for that, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He uses the language of lifestyle and walking and living our lives in good works. Good works are anything, any actions of kindness, generosity, sacrifice, that benefit other people in any capacity. We could define them. It also includes being hardworking, not lazy, not apathetic. Fulfilling your responsibilities is doing good. You don't have to use a lot of imagination. Particularly where this makes, with the gospel is it's easy to do good to those who do good to us. Right? It's easy to be good to our friends, do kind acts to those who do us. It's, it's another thing to do good, to do kind acts, do sacrificial things to those who oppose us, who disagree with us, who are angry with us, or we're angry with. The gospel says that you really shine your good works, really become good when you give what they do not deserve, when you behave in a way that they do not, they do not deserve. Why? Because we don't deserve the way God treats us. We turn around and share the same gospel with other people. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, uh, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to, in the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before, before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A sign that we are doing a work that is gospel-related, is reflects the gospel, is when we do whatever we do, we live, we say, we behave in such a way, in such a way that at the end of it, people say, you know what? God is good. This didn't come from Royce. This didn't come from this other person. God must be good. That's when a good act reflects the gospel. Thirdly, because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, transform lives will express the power of the gospel by seeking to know God. Verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. 
This word uh, increasing here in verse 10 is the same word as growing in, in verse 6. Growing in our knowledge of God. Increasing in our knowledge of God. Um, it is understanding who God is and what He has does, the things He does, and why He does what He does. There are many things that we do and we learn lessons and we study and we go through life and it's a, it's a very pointed question to ask somebody as they go through issues of life and struggle, what did you learn about God? Often, not always, but often they scratch their head. I, I don't know. But Paul's saying when you have spiritual wisdom and knowledge and you're walking in the life of that, what happens is the more you walk, the more you live your life, the more you understand the ways of God, the more you understand the character of God. Jeremiah said, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or let the mighty man boast of his might, or let the rich man boast of his riches. All of which things that we like to boast about in our culture. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. There are things that we go and the things that we do that we, when we come out of it, do we understand God's love a little bit deeper? Do we understand God's patience with us a little bit deeper? Do we under God, understand God's forgiveness for us just a little bit more? I, um, a while ago, quite a while ago, when I was much younger, I was doing a study with a group of guys on the book of Revelation. And we we're going through it and we we're talking about it. And we, you know, I read Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey and you know, all these kind of books on it. So our discussion went on for about an hour. And there was a group of us young guys and then there was an older pastor with us. And he just sat and listened, didn't say a thing. And then we're going through all the stuff and we're talking about the millennium and the tribulation and the marks of this and the marks of that. And we were all convinced that you're going to have the UPC symbol on your forehead and get scanned and you know, all that kind of stuff. And he's patiently listened through it. And after a while, they ask, hey, what do you have to say? He says, you know, interesting stuff here, guys, but um, what does the book of Revelation say about Jesus? We miss that. He said, doesn't the first four words of the book open with the revelation of Jesus Christ? It opens with saying, you're going to know more about Christ as you read this book. It has events, it has all that other kind of stuff, but it's about Christ. Many of us pursue knowledge, insight, things in life, and we miss Christ in the obvious. We increase in the knowledge of God. Fourthly, because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, transforming lives will express the power of the gospel by gaining strength during difficult times. Look at verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. When faced with difficult times, and we will have difficult times as Christians, there is no promise that if you become a Christian, all those problems go away. In fact, I would make a good sell that you're going to get more problems in your life. Not because you're a magnet, problem magnet, but there are issues raised by the gospel. They weren't issues before. There's opposition to you in other people and in uh, spiritual forces that you didn't have before. There's just things that we, we have, and we live still, still live in the same fallen world that everybody else lives. We have difficulties of life. We shouldn't be surprised. The question is, that how do transformed people respond to that? They don't pull away in weakness. They don't pull away in fear. They engage those difficulties. They face those difficulties. They weather those difficulties. Um, and he says that the strength of all power, he means that you are empowered with a wide-ranging power. Again, the all power isn't simply that you have all the power, which you do in Christ, but it's, it's wide-ranging. So no matter what you're facing, no matter what the issue, 
It's wide-ranging, and he has some power for you to go through that. The purpose, why does, he, why does he have that power? Why do you get power? So you get stronger spiritually, so you get, you know, so the, the, so the problems go away. There's no mention of the problems going away. There's no mention that the difficulties go away. Why does God give us strength and power? He tells us here, for endurance and patience. For endurance and patience. Endurance is the perseverance to continue during the difficult circumstances, right? A marathon runner needs endurance. He's got to to persevere. He or she has to persevere through the long endurance. That's why they're called endurance runners. Okay? That's what life is. When you have a difficulty, God's goal isn't to remove it. It is that you get through it with endurance. His strength provides that endurance. It also says patience. Why patience? Because most of the time that we're facing a difficulty, there's other people involved. And there's usually some conflict or misunderstanding or something happened to those people. And we need divine patience. Patience is the self-control towards others who might be involved in a difficult time. We work through those things. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I was reading a book, Monica and I, um, by a guy named Gary Smalley. I don't, I don't know if he's still around doing his stuff. He's a family guy, talks a lot about family. And he talks about how he, when he was doing his family conferences, he would go and teach. And when, one of the things he would do is always go to a church and he's going to teach about family. He'd always say, listen, I'll do the conference. I'll do what I'm going to do. But I want to interview some of your best families. Well, whoever this is, whoever this is, every church has a family. Wow, the Joneses, the Smiths, the whoever. They're the family that everybody says they got their act together. They're the family we want to be like. So most of the time he got a church. So he'd interview these people. And he did this over and over and over again. And he found certain things in common. But one of the things that most of these families said they had in common was camping. Was camping. And he says, of course. Back to nature, that whole Eden thing. This is great. That's what's the secret of having a great family. So he decided to what? Go camping with his wife and three children. So he got his trailer and he got one of those, those uh, Apache kind of, you know, crank it up, and the tent things, okay? And he says, we're going to five days, we're going to go into the wilderness, we're going camping. This is a while ago. There's no cell phones, there's no DVD players, there's none of that kind of stuff. Phones still had wires and everything. So he goes out camping, they have five days, and it pours for four days. Now he describes five people in a tent, one deck of cards for four days. Now, tell me, was there a need for endurance and patience? Yeah. He goes through story after story, and yes, they're funny, but yes, they are very poignant, about a family who loves each other or about to kill each other at four days. And uh, the fifth day, and he has different camping trips and different stories. Here's his conclusion. Why is camping build strong families? Shared conflict. Because when they go camping, they can't just go in the other room. They can't go down to the store. They can't leave. They can't watch TV. They have to deal with each other. And when you're locked in a room or in a tent together for extended periods of time, you have to put up with it. You can't escape. That was his secret to having a tight family. Every family has conflict. Every church has conflict. Every missional home community has conflict. The question is not whether or not we're going to have conflict. The, conflict, the question is whether we're going to have the endurance and patience in, provided by God to see us through. And it's on the backside of conflict that families grow tighter and stronger. It's on the backside of conflict that churches grow stronger. And this could be true in your, we say in a missional home community is to develop in community. We want our people involved in our missional home community to develop in community. We expect that you're going to bring conflict in and and, and hurts and burdens and difficulties from your life, and you bring them in, and as a home community, you pray for each other, and you 
serve each other and you take care of each other. We expect that. But we also expect, which we don't advertise, that there's going to be times you guys don't get along. You know, your kid smacked my kid again, okay? Those things happen. The question is not whether there's going to be conflict within the mission alone community. The question is how are you guys going to get it? Is there going to be divine endurance and patience to get through it? On the back side, you have developed in community. Fifthly, just real briefly, um, because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, transform lives express the power of the gospel by um, having an attitude of gratitude. Verse 12, with joy giving thanks to the Father. Significant, and I think it's significant that immediately following his, rec- his prayer that they have endurance and patience, he follows that up with, with joy giving thanks. With joy giving thanks. Uh, people who are, who are transformed by the gospel are not whiners and complainers. They don't spend their time pointing out all the things wrong and all the issues. They, they are very joyful and thanksgiving people. And here's the key. Even in spite of the difficulties, even in the midst of the difficulties, they have things because of the grace of God in life, the strength of God in life. They know they can see because they're understanding and growing and increasing in the knowledge of God. They have something to be thankful for. It is not, it is not the problem or the, the situation they're facing. That's a sign, a huge sign, that thanksgiving and joy are aspects of the gospel life. And then lastly, the sixth one is because of the gospel, the power of God to transform lives. Transform lives will express the power of gospel by re- reproducing um, gospel transformation in others. Reproducing. Now, this is a little less evident in there, and he doesn't say it. I need to go back to this, but it is there, and that is that growth and increasing. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about how the gospel bears fruit and grows and, and stuff. Another quiz for you. What is this? It's an apple. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? So what about? This is a lime. I'm telling you what it is, so you have to, cause you might not be able to see it. It's a lime. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? This is a tomato with its sticker on it. Is this a fruit or a vegetable? It's a fruit. Oh, you guys are good. It's a good. It's a fruit. Uh, culinary, we treat it, in culinary world, we treat it as a vegetable, but botanically, it's a fruit. Pepper, fruit or a vegetable? It's a fruit. Okay? Zucchini, fresh out of our garden this morning, fruit or vegetable? All those in favor of fruit? All those favoring vegetable? All those two chicken to raise their hand? It's a, it's a fruit. Okay, what makes a fruit a fruit botanically? Seeds. If it has seeds, it's a fruit. This may be more than you want to know, but a fruit is the mature female reproductive organ of the plant. You can bring that up at lunch while you're eating your fruit salad, okay? (laughs) They are fruits. They are fruits because they have the seeds. They flower. There are male-female parts. You know what happens with male-female parts? Seeds are produced, which are the babies, if you will. Okay? Here's the point. Fruitfulness produces seeds. What do we do with the seeds? We plant them. They grow a new plant with new fruit. They reproduce. Anything living and healthy naturally reproduces. Anything living and healthy naturally reproduces. The gospel naturally 
reproduces. People whose lives are transformed by the gospel, so the fruit of their life is the gospel, that transformation will produce the seeds of the gospel being shared with other people, which will go into their lives and will bloom and, and grow and bloom and produce seeds. Anything healthy and reproducing produce seeds. If gospel-transformed people will reproduce other gospel-transformed people. That is often overlooked. And I think if there's a mark of fruitfulness lacking in many people's lives, and many churches' lives, it is that aspect of reproduction. It's not just for us to do it. It's not just for us to keep. It is us for us to, since we have freely given, gotten, it is for us to freely give away. Gospel will reproduce itself in other people. So we have tomatoes produce tomatoes. Peppers produce peppers. Zucchinis produce zucchinis. The gospel produces fruit. Change lives that reflect the gospel. If the gospel has been planted in your life, the question is, what fruit is it producing? And if it's not, the question then is, why not? The the danger at this point would be that we would say, well, okay, Royce, what you're saying is, do more, be better, try harder. It's not what we're saying. Look at verse 13. Paul says, after he prays his prayer, as part of his prayer, he says, he, was, he being Christ, was delivered over, has delivered us over, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul wraps this whole prayer up with their fruitfulness, their life showing what it is to remind them this is not from them. The power of life is not in the soil. It's in the seed. The gospel is planted in people's lives. It produces the growth. Paul's reminded of that. The power in your life to produce fruit isn't that you do more, be better, try harder. It's that we yield to the gospel of Christ. We understand. Remember back to that hearing and understanding and having more spiritual insight? We come and we unpack in our life that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness, the fallen world, the satanic world, into the kingdom of the Son He loves. It is that we have redemption. We have been bought back. The price that is paid for us has purchased us back from Christ. Things owed, all the accounts taken, we are righteous in, in, in before God's eyes because of the righteousness of Christ. Our sin is transferred to Him. His righteousness is transferred to us by the death on the cross, His death and resurrection. That is why we can bear fruit. That's why the Holy Spirit is active in our life with the fruit of the Spirit. That is why things, and He says, for the forgiveness of sins. The things that hold us back, the things that hold us back with other people, the things that hold other people back, Christ has forgiven us for those. We can be generous with other people and the fruitfulness of our lives with other people because He has forgiven not only our sins, but He's forgiven their sins too. I no longer have to say, you have to pay when you hurt me. I get to freely give you the the forgiveness of Christ. When we celebrate every week, we celebrate communion. We invite you now as we go to the worship, we're going to go to communion. We celebrate this, this, this verse, 13. He was delivered for death, the domain of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We celebrate every week this forgiveness of sins. We celebrate every week when you come up to the table and you take of the elements of the communion, what you are celebrating is, thank you, Lord. Eucharist is a common word for uh, the Lord's Supper, which simply means thanksgiving. 
For thank you, Lord, that I am no longer in the dominion of darkness, domain of darkness. I am in the kingdom of your beloved Son. I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I have been forgiven. It's a done deal. I do not earn it by doing more, being better, trying harder. The fruit that you have in your life, that you can take in your life, is a fruitfulness because of what God is doing in your life, what Christ is doing in your life, what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, not by your own power. By your own power. I want to close by praying. Can you stand with me? I'm just going to pray this prayer real quick. I'm going to read it, read a couple of things. As we go through this, I would like you to, I'm going to read Paul's prayer that we just walked through. Just a couple seconds each line. As we do so, I would like you to think about what he says and pray that for yourself. Just pray that for yourself, okay? I'm going to read a line, pause for a couple seconds. You pray while I'm paused, okay? This is what Paul's prayer is. He prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience. With joy, giving thanks to the Father. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and in whose now his name we now celebrate and worship and uh, give thanks back to you in song and prayer and worship. We thank you in your precious and glorious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.